Hello, everybody, and welcome to Take the Stage to the Opera podcast. This is our final week of Performance Anxiety Month. We have learned so much from Spencer Glass in episode 32 and from Daniel Keating Roberts in episode 33. Make sure to check those out. But today, we are interviewing a singer and a licensed therapist, Ingla Onstad, who coaches singers with performance anxiety. We have been following her on social media, and I am telling you, you do not want to miss this interview. Is everyone saying no to your singing career? Well, we here at Take the Stage Opera Podcast say toy, toy, toy. Find out what is holding you back so you can stop waiting in the wings and go out and get your standing ovation. There are no forbidden topics here, so get your ticket and find your seat. In Boca Lupo. Welcome, everybody. This is Mariah, and of course, I am joined by Evan. Hello. <laughs> it seems kind of funny to talk so much about performance anxiety when most of us aren't fully performing yet. Yeah, I know. But I was thinking the other day how this kind of mental game for preparing for auditions and performances, it really is like a practice you have to develop, yes. right? Like if you wait until the day of your performance and you're like, hey, I have performance anxiety. What do I do? I mean, you can do something. It's right. But it's probably a little more powerful if you start practicing now. Yes. So hopefully you enjoy this episode with Ingla. But um, before we get started, we wanted to talk a little bit about our course that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. We are officially starting it next week live and in person with our first group of students. Um, and we are super excited for that. It's going to be live with people in our area. Um, but it will be made available more broadly shortly. So keep tuned. Yes, we are really trying to think of more ways to connect with you, our listeners. And we're so grateful for your support. We want to get to know you better. And um, yeah, so we're excited. And with that, let's go ahead and introduce our guest. Ingela Onstad is a soprano who has sung at opera houses around the world, including Dresden's Staatsoperette and the Santa Fe Opera. She performs in concerts as well. The amazing thing is that she is the perfect combination of professional singer because she is also a licensed mental health counselor and a board certified coach. We are so excited to have her here today because she is the total package. Welcome, Ingela. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Let's go ahead and get started by asking how you decided um, what you wanted to, to be when you grew up. If, if I remember right, you started out studying music, and then later you went into therapy. So how did that happen? Yeah, that's right. Well, I think like most of us singers out there in the world, I never had a plan B. Singing was just it for me, and that's all I wanted to do. And I, after my undergraduate degree, moved to Germany and, um, you know, lived there for a decade and... Um, not all of it was, uh, you know, peachy keen, but there were a couple years of kind of figuring out how I was going to make everything work. But then I ended up um, being able to sing for a while, which was, uh, you know, fantastic. And I really loved it. And then, you know, some things changed in my life and I ended up moving back to the United States in 2012. And I, at first, uh, I knew that I wasn't going to try to pursue a major freelance career here. I felt a little burned out and I wasn't ready for sort of the hustle of all of it and all of my connections were in Europe anyways and I just I was I was ready for a change I knew I still wanted to do some singing but I no longer wanted to rely on it as my full-time 
paycheck and profession. So I considered going the uh, music academic route um, and then decided against that uh, because, you know, that's also a somewhat cutthroat field to enter and unless you're really (laughs) passionate about it and you know my husband is an academic and so I I can see up close and personal you know the world of academia and how and and the challenges it brings and I realized that I'd always been interested in psychology and that I was often the person that people came to when they had something to discuss when they wanted help with something when they wanted feedback I was just I've always been that person ever since I was little itty bitty girl I'm, I'm the I'm many people's confidant. So it felt very natural to me to pursue this. And I uh, got my master's degree in counseling and uh, became a licensed mental health counselor, also known as sometimes psychotherapist. The designation of the licensure is a little bit different in every state, but, um, you know, a a professional counselor. And um, I did that for a few years. I'm still doing it a couple days a week. And then I just kept on having people from the music community um, I was still pursuing, I, I've still been pursuing music this whole entire time, but um, I had people that I knew from the musical community, you know, oftentimes I'd get these like late night calls or text messages of, oh my gosh, can you help me with this? I'm really freaking out. I have a performance tomorrow and I don't know what to do and I'm feeling all this anxiety. And it really dawned on me that I was keeping my two professions separate and I needed to find a way to combine them. So mm. Thus, my coaching practice, Courageous Artistry, was born. Uh, Coaching versus regular therapy allows me to work with anybody anywhere in the world. So I don't just have to be relegated to working with people inside my home state where I'm licensed. And it's just been so much fun. I launched the business officially at the beginning of January um, 2020. So right before the pandemic started. (laughs) Don't know if that was a good or a bad time to be launching a business like this. It's my only one that I've launched. So who knows, but um, it's been going really well. And I enjoy working with all sorts of clients. It so happens that of course, I have a lot of singers that work with me because that's my main group that I know. And my husband's also a singer. And so, you know, I know a lot of people and have a lot of a good network there, but I also have actors that I work with and instrumentalists and um, some dancers too. And, and then some people that work out that reach out to work with me who are not performers, but something in my materials or content that I have produced has spoken to them. And, you know, really the skills that I work with clients on could be used with anybody because we all suffer with confidence issues and self-worth issues and motivation and, um, you know, stage fright, fear of public speaking, et cetera. Oh, I think it's so cool that the, the opera world and the, the therapy world and also coaching kind of melded together to make you this unique package yeah, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. I I feel pretty pretty excited, and I, I love what I do, and I'm um, busy growing my business larger and larger, and have a lot of plans for the future uh, to be able to help as many people as I can. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering um, if you could talk just for a minute about you know the difference between coaching and therapy. Uh, we talk a lot about you know maintaining our mental health as singers on this podcast. And that question has kind of come up. Should I work with a therapist? Should I work with a coach? Does it matter what's the difference? And I think some people have very strong opinions about that. But um, from, you know, discussing with you, I feel like there's kind of some distinct differences that might lend you help in different ways. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's something that I often explain to new clients or prospective clients or other people who say, well, okay, what's, what's the difference? What is it that you do that's so different? I'll just tell you how I define it and how I've been taught to define it because uh, I had to become a board certified coach in order to show that I understood the difference between therapy and coaching and that I was not unethically or illegally practicing therapy with people um, in states or countries where I'm not licensed to do so. So um, the way I define it for most people is that uh, we all have a certain baseline functioning that we are aiming to be at, you know, where we're maybe we use terms like, uh, I'm not feeling like myself, or maybe people are telling us you seem really off lately, or maybe we've are a person who has struggled with depression or anxiety or other issues in the past, that's what therapy is really great for. Therapy is really great for diagnosing what an issue is, of making sure you're getting the appropriate treatment for it to help bring you back up to your baseline functioning. Um, so, it, you know, a, th- a therapist, working with a therapist can help us maintain good mental and emotional well, well-being and yes, health, definitely. you know, which is excellent. And for some people, you know, they, they might need or want to have the support of a therapist lifelong. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. We all need somewhere where we can go, where we feel seen and understood and heard and supported. Where coaching comes in is in coaching, I aim to help people who are already functioning pretty well reach that last 5 to 10% that they're aiming for. And I think this really applies to a lot of us performers. It, we know that we need um, a certain baseline of mental and emotional well-being in order to be in this profession at all. If we're really truly suffering, it's going to be very, very hard for us to pursue our craft because what we do really takes a lot of confidence and focus and energy and time. So um, when I work with performers in my coaching practice, these are generally speaking people who have already done therapy and maybe found it helpful or, you know, sometimes they haven't found it helpful, who are not suffering from any major mental health disorders at the time. Right, sure. Have a certain level of stability um, and who are really looking to just amp up what they're doing in their career. Um, now, this isn't to say that a person has to be in like, you know, perfect 100% mental health status. You know, there is no such thing. Um, right, right. But for yeah. myself, being a therapist as well, I can tell very quickly if a person can use my help as a coach to set goals and really look towards the future, or if a person maybe needs the support of a therapist. Um, And maybe another way to explain it to people is oftentimes therapy can be really helpful for us to learn how to connect our past to our present. So to say, where am I today and how did I get here? And what were all the factors that came into this throughout my life that uh, landed me at this point today and that we build insight into some of our issues, whereas coaching is very much present to future focused. Okay, you're here today. Where do you want to go and how can I help you get there? Therefore, it's also very action oriented and some forms of therapy are more action oriented than others. But it's, it's less contemplative and more about setting goals and taking action. Yeah. So I, it sounds like there are really distinct benefits for both. And I even know people who use both, you know, for yes, different reasons, definitely. right? So I think whatever you need to make sure that you're feeling well and moving forward and, you know, if it's a therapist, if it's a life coach, if it's both, you know, use what you need. <laughs> 
Yeah, use what you need. And, and, you know, I tell my clients, my coaching clients, there is no, um, there's no reason why um, I cannot see you in conjunction with you seeing a therapist. We're just going to be very yeah. clear about what are therapy issues to work on and what are coaching issues to work on. And I'm also, you know, ethically allowed to do so as a certified coach if I know that my client has a therapist. Whereas you shouldn't be seeing two therapists. Um, that would be considered an ethical um, violation that if I, in my therapy practice, if I find out that a client is seeing another therapist, we have to have a discussion about um, what that's about and how they're going to continue. Because it's sort of like you wouldn't want to have two primary care doctors that are both prescribing you different medications. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, that's sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so can you talk to us just a little bit about what performance anxiety is and what it means to us as singers? Yeah, I think we all might have a slightly different experience and definition of this, but the way I generally describe it to people is performance anxiety is really just about the root emotion of fear, which is one of our most essential emotions as a human being. If we didn't have fear of things, we would not survive in this world for very long. We would make all sorts of foolish decisions. Um, We would, you know, put our hand on a hot stove and we'd step out into traffic. So our fear is there to protect us and to ensure our survival. And it's kind of interesting because um, I think what has happened maybe over time is that, you know, back in Paleolithic times, we would have been afraid of of wild animals and warring uh, tribes and factions. And um, we also would have had uh, fear of... Even, you know, back at that time, we would have had sort of a social anxiety type of fear because had I um, been rejected from the group that I was in, right, if they decided they no longer liked me and I wasn't able to get along with them, that could have meant death for me. Sure. So we have these, these very strong instincts of fear for a reason. We care very deeply what others think of us, and that's how we're built. And our sort of brain's factory setting is one of... Um, always scanning our environment for disasters and threats that might be coming at us so that we can know how to react in that moment. So we're really, really great at surviving. But what I say is we're not great at thriving. If we want to be thriving, we've got to work at that a little bit harder because it doesn't come supernaturally to us human beings. So when I speak um, to clients about performance anxiety or when they come to me and say, I'm really suffering with this, that, and the other thing, it can show up in so many different ways, right? For some people, it's the classic stage fright, nerves, jitters, pre-performance. For some people, it might hit them in the middle of a performance. For some mm-hmm. people, it's already happening like they're not auditioning because they're too nervous to put themselves out there or they're not oh, right. saying yes to opportunities or taking opportunities. I would also define that as, in a way, performance anxiety, right? This fear that I'm not good enough yet, or I'm not ready enough yet, or what would happen if I crumbled up there? Would I be able to survive it? So I think it can, um, you know, show up in in lots of of different ways and situations. Some people talk about it as if it's a specific phobia, like the fear of something very particular, like the fear of the stage. And other people talk about it as a sort of a factor of social anxiety because we care so deeply what others think and we're deeply afraid of that rejection. Um, and rightfully so, because like I mentioned before, it has to do with our survival and our overall well-being. So yeah, I hope that answers your questions. I think it's uh, it's it's a very broad topic and it's always interesting to me when I speak with people to see what their experience of it is. 
That reminds me um, in David Byrne's book, Feeling Great, he talks about discovering the anxieties or like things that make you feel sad or if you go through a trauma and then realizing the good things that that tells you about yourself. Like I feel anxiety and that means that I care and that or, you know, whatever it is, trying to find the positive things about I feel sad that somebody said this to me and it means that I long for connection and that's like a beautiful thing about me. So kind of yeah. turning it around. That's really interesting. Yeah, I like I like that take on it. I'll have to look up that book. And and yeah, in my work with clients, it's it's about helping people recognize that this is a normal reaction because we care and because we have a huge emotional and social and monetary investment in what we do, we care. Therefore, when we care about something, we worry about losing it. And that's that's natural. However, we don't want that fear to be driving the car. <laughs> yeah, we need to make yeah. sure that it's not so overwhelming. We need to develop skills and tools so that it's not in the driver's seat all the time. It'll likely always be in the car in some way, shape, or form. Maybe mm-hmm. it'll be in the back seat. Hopefully it'll be in the trunk. Maybe it'll be riding on the back bumper. But we don't want it front and center, and we don't even really want it in the passenger seat. So our goal is to move it further back in our vehicle so that it's not steering us. So what does a like a daily practice look like to help with performance anxiety? Mm, that's a good question, and that's something I like to talk about a lot. Um, I actually have a, a free download on my website at CourageousArtistry.com about building a pre-performance ritual. I'm a big awesome. fan of rituals and routines. I have a morning routine that I do. I have a pre-performance routine. I think where the classical music community has perhaps steered us wrong over the years without knowingly doing so is that there's been a lot of um, maybe false assumptions that the more you practice and the better you become, the less anxious you will become. That anxiety is just because you haven't practiced enough. And I've even Mm, literally heard people in the field say things like this, which is just so damaging and not true. And, you know, I joke around that I'll work with like a a younger college age student in the morning on their anxiety and they'll be like, oh, well, I know once I get better and once I get a contract at the Met, then I'll no longer feel anxious. And then very same day later on, I'll have a a high level performer that I work with who maybe literally does sing at the Met and they're worried about something else, right? So (laughs) I often tell younger people that I am working with, do not harbor any false assumptions that as you get older and better, that your anxiety will go away. I 100% thought that as a young singer. And what I've realized as I've gotten older is that it gets worse because things become bigger. Like I'm not just singing for a jury anymore. I'm singing for a job. Yeah, I'm singing to pay my mortgage, my rent, pay my insurance, (laughs) my bills, go to my, pay my kids' school fees or whatever it is. Yeah, the stakes become higher and higher the higher we go. So, So back to this idea of rituals and routines, it's so interesting to me that if, if we had a little scale in front of us, one of those old fashioned scales with, you know, two plates, and we thought about all the time, money and energy that we have invested in furthering our craft, and then we thought about how much time, money, money and energy we've invested in attending to our mental and emotional well-being and our ability to handle our craft. I mean, it, it would, it would, we would just need different scale, like, it... <laughs> It doesn't even exist, right? Nobody in in our field has necessarily um, recognized the importance of having tools to deal with our fear. And I think it becomes this really sad stigma that people don't want to talk about it. And in fact, it's been interesting. I've tried to um, 
form a couple groups and people get very nervous to talk about these things in front of other people like it's some dirty shameful little secret and I'm like y'all we all feel this way sometimes <laughs> and you know and sometimes even the professionals that you admire the most you have no idea what they're coping with you have no idea if they're taking anti-anxiety meds or beta blockers or what they're doing in order to get through this yes are there the people who kind of sail through for sure but I would say they're probably in the minority. So when I talk with people about building a routine or a ritual, I think there's the daily things that we can do to help stabilize ourselves, like having a meditation routine. It doesn't have to be super long. Making sure that we have exercise and movement in our lives so that we are able to discharge some of the stress from everyday life. Uh, making sure that we're getting adequate rest and sleep. If you do not have good sleep habits, what we call sleep hygiene, um, you really need to work on that. If you are up late on a device um, and you are looking at all that blue light that's coming out of it, even if you have it on, on um, you know, night mode or whatever, uh, you are disturbing your sleep cycles. If we can't be sleeping well, resting well, having some downtime, having adequate nutrition and movement, we are not going to be at our best mentally and emotionally. I know for myself, I notice a very strong difference if I have one night of very poor sleep the next day I feel more anxious. Mm. I just feel this sense of anxiety growing. Um, so I look at a lot of different areas with people. I look at sort of physical grounding routines like breathing exercises and meditation and movement and yoga and restorative yoga. And there are tools like biofeedback that you can work on with a licensed therapist. Um, we look at how we are building up their ability to cope emotionally with things. So this is going to be through learning how to process difficult emotions, um, learning how to accept uh, emotions and recognize uh, how they feel in the body. Um, then there's the very important um, sort of mental uh, or cognitive toolbox that we look at. And we look at, you know, what types of thoughts are you having about yourself and how is this affecting you emotionally? Um, how does this affect the types of choices you make? Like essentially, is your self-talk crappy or not crappy? And for most of us, it's pretty darn crappy because once again, that has to do with our brain's factory setting of negativity, right? Um, and we, I find that with most of my performers, the physical category, um, those routines, and then also the mental are really very impactful. Yeah, that, that's interesting that you brought up like the investments that we're willing to put in. And of course, like, you know, sleeping, an investment, eating healthy, an investment, doing a little bit of exercise, even if it's gentle. But I, you know, it's been a big turnaround for me in the last year to say my mental health is an investment, not only just for myself, because in a way I wasn't willing to invest in myself. But when I decided that my mental health was an investment in my singing career, I was like, oh, okay, I guess I can do it, <laughs> which is really sad. <laughs> But, you. <laughs> you know, I started buying books and seeing a life coach and my wife has done the same things. And we've really started like setting aside money monthly that we can do that. And it's the same that I do for setting aside money for my voice lessons. But it's just been such a turnaround for me to say that my mind is worth it. <laughs> Yeah, it's it sounds so revolutionary yet so basic at the same time. And I'm, I'm really, you know, good for you for taking that so seriously. And I think you don't necessarily, you know, ha 
have to make huge monetary investments in order to make this happen for yourself. However, like you pointed out, we set aside money for voice lessons and coachings. What if you could walk into a voice lesson or coaching feeling calm and confident and centered, being able to handle it when something goes poorly that day and not totally, you know, spiral? What if you were able to throw your hat into the ring more often because you knew that if it didn't work out, you'd be okay and that you could keep on going. You know, I think what we do as as performers is we're very much like salespeople. We have to know how to sell ourselves. We have to be the salesperson who's getting on the phone, you know, multiple times a day, calling up that person and saying, will you buy what I'm selling? Will you buy what I'm selling? And that takes a lot of resilience. And that's not just going to come to us for most of us, it's not going to come to us naturally. It's a skill that we have to build. We have to learn how to speak to ourselves differently and view ourselves and our actions differently. And also, you know, make sure that other areas of our lives are strong and robust so that all of our eggs are just not in the performing basket for, for our own well-being. And dare I say that, you know, it's probably equally as important as the voice lessons. Like I, I've started taking just a couple fewer voice lessons so that I can afford these other things. And this is me going through a major vocal rebuild. You know, I'm rebuilding my voice, but I feel like the mental part is just as important. So yeah, I, I, you know, you're, you're speaking my language here. I always say like, why would we think we can DIY our well-being when we'll, we'll hire other experts to do other things for us, especially in this field, we'll spend so much money on our training. And, and I think for a lot of us, it's just that we don't know. And we, mm. we don't know that we could feel better. And we think everybody feels right. this way, or we think we're the only one that feels this way and that there's something wrong with us. Right, right. Wow. So I have a question for you about meditation um, that you mentioned earlier. I have wanted to put some more meditation time into my life. Um, but I feel like I'm really terrible at it. And I just finished reading a book by Glennon Doyle called Untamed, where she talks about how she would like just sit in her closet alone for 10 minutes every day and how when she first started doing it, she was just like on her phone and like it wasn't very helpful at all. And I feel like I can't get past that stage. Like it's just I sit there and think about nothing or think about unhelpful things. So how, how can you structure a meditation to be helpful for yourself? Well, it's funny because when you asked me this, Mariah, I could have told you exactly what you were going to say <laughs> because I get this comment all the time. So I was like, oh, here, here we go. And I knew exactly what you were going to say. You were going to say, I've tried meditation, but it hasn't worked for me because I'm not good at it. Essentially, right? (laughs) To which I say, that's the whole point. The point is that we're not good at it. The point is that if we experience, I mean, I meditate on an almost everyday basis. I could probably tell you the things I was, uh, where my monkey brain was going this morning in my meditation. It was going to a conversation I had yesterday with a client. It was going to plans I have tonight to go see my family. And this is what brains do. But we're so goal-oriented and goal-focused that we think there's, you know, quote-unquote, something wrong with us if we can't get our brain to calm down. Um, (laughs) I think, you know, a successful meditation practice is just showing up and doing it and being willing to suck at it because you're human and you have a human brain and that's how human brains work. And that with time, you might be able to notice, oh, I I had maybe a, a moment or two in that meditation where I felt that sense of timelessness or where I was really not thinking about anything. But even being able to build the skill of noticing when our brain veers off, 
when we start thinking about things and being able to label it, oh, I'm thinking right now. Or maybe we notice, ah, that's a feeling of anxiety. Just kind of that moment of peace because, yeah, especially in, uh, you know, modern culture, we we refuse almost to uh, allow ourselves any space or time to do anything. We, I, I just got back from a, a trip and uh, my husband and I were at a resort and it was so interesting to look around at dinner time and see um, everybody at a table on their phones the whole time. It was like mm-hmm. they, we couldn't even, people couldn't even be present in conversation with one another, you know, and uh, it's, yeah, so... I think just trying it is already a win. Just committing to show up and be bad at it for five, ten minutes a day, you're on the right track. <laughs> All right. You're a winner. <laughs> you're a winner. <laughs> I love that. So we've got some questions. I mean, we could talk about this all day, and maybe someday we'll bring you back. But <laughs> I'd love to be back. <laughs> um, we've got some questions that we love to ask all of our singer guests. And one of them, this has kind of become almost the core of our podcast, is what's the, what's the one part of your career development that was the biggest struggle for you? Maybe everyone told you, you've got to change, or this has to change. And maybe they were right, and maybe they were wrong. But what kind of how did you deal with that? Uh, you know, as you were developing your career? I don't know if there was something that people told me necessarily, like, oh, you have to change or that's not right. Or um, I would say if I had to kind of point to moments in my career development um, that I look back on and think, oh, wow, I wish I would have known X, Y, or Z at the time. Mm -hmm. It was in those sort of emerging years. I wish I would have trusted myself more. And of course, this very much fuels what I do to help people now is that, you know, I was able to have some semblance of a career. Would I have liked to have gotten even higher on the ladder? Sure. Who who wouldn't in many ways? But, you know, I, I had the good fortune and, and I, you know, to be able to sing professionally for um, a while and, um, you know, and that I, I still get to sing professionally and get paid to sing. And, and that's awesome. But I look back at how much self-doubt I had and how much maybe the mantra of I'm not ready yet I'm not ready Mm. yet I'm not ready enough I'm not good enough yet and now of course you know some people like an 18 year old has no business singing some giant Verdi aria and auditioning for the Met right there are certain things that of course we have to know in our vocal development if we're ready for and that's why we need mentors um but I think I was ready for more things than I thought I was. And mm. it was just that doubt and that fear of putting myself out there and, and getting rejected, right? So it was safer to tell myself I'm not ready yet than it was at the time to put myself out there. But I, I look back and I think, wow, I wonder, knowing what I know now and having the skills and tools that I have now, I, I wonder what could have been different for me. And I don't regret any of it because I'm very happy with my life now, but it's interesting to see um, in the work that I do with clients, I, I, I very much see myself in, in everybody. Um, so our second question is, how are you, how have you in the past or how are you currently finding joy in your singing? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question to ask, especially, uh, you know, as the pandemic is wrapping up. Yeah. <laughs> the pandemic was good for me in that it, I had been, you know, working full time as a therapist and a coach. I also taught voice privately for a decade. So I was like wrapping, I wrapped up my teaching 
permanently um, oh. six months prior to the pandemic starting. But, you know, I'd been juggling a lot of a lot of loves and a lot of careers. And then I was also probably doing one to two to three gigs a month. So there was I felt like I was always kind of scrambling, you know, the workday would be done and I would eat dinner and then I'd be like, oh my gosh, I've got to go back into the studio and learn this piece for this concert that I have. And, you know, I always did it and I, I love being on stage and I, I love still having opportunities to sing, even though I'm, I'm no longer doing it full time and I feel very grateful to be able to do so. Um, but yeah, I, once the pandemic hit and all of my singing gigs got canceled, it was a really great chance for me to ask myself, why do I sing? Because without that external motivation of a gig and money and people's expectations and, you know, colleagues' expectations and maintaining their respect and whatnot, uh, I realized that it had been probably, you know, it had been 20-something years since I had just sung for the pleasure of singing. I was always singing to prepare for something. And... um, you know, then I think this happened to a lot of us in the pandemic. We didn't have that same motivation. We didn't have those external motivators. And then we all just kind of whoa, crashed. And I crashed for a while, but not in a bad way. I was happy to just say, I'm going to take a break. And I'm going to think about why I sing and how I want to continue singing in the future and what this gives me. Um, and so for me, it was a great chance to just kind of get back to my my deeper why I do this. And uh yeah I won't say that um it hasn't it's been exciting to reemerge. I've done some recording projects and um actually some quite large projects recently which has been fun and unexpected um <sighs> that have been very challenging in very many ways and I think I have a different attitude towards it now like I I recognize this is a, a privilege and an opportunity that I get to take advantage of but I'm also, I've learned to rely on the outcome less in terms of for my mm. self-esteem, right? That the mm. outcome of this concert or this project, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do my best, but I'm not going to like make the little mistakes that happen or whatever happens mean so much because this is just one big wild ride that we're all on in this lifetime. And if I can't <laughs> show up to a gig and try my hardest to enjoy the heck out of it as best I can, what am I doing here? yeah absolutely I don't have to be doing it I this is my choice and so if it's going to be my choice I've got to work on bringing a stronger mental game and also just a more open joyful attitude towards things oh I love that yeah I've started discovering that a little bit too during the pandemic because I haven't had I mean I've had very few gigs but just having the time to sing because I love to sing has been really nice yeah so do you have a dream role that you've always wanted to do? Yeah, I was thinking about that. Um, I think if I like really had to choose, you know, um, I would probably do something big like Puccini or I'd, I'd probably pick Tosca or maybe I would do something, mm. one of the big Strauss heroines. I would probably, mm. you know, do Arabella or the Marshallin or something like that. I love Strauss yes. and... Um, I mean, gosh, there's so many different things that I'd love to, I'd love to do something. I do a lot of new music, a lot of contemporary sure. work, and I would love to do something fun and crazy like Lulu. Yes. Um, yeah. that's really fun to sink my teeth into. Um, yeah, there's probably a, a lot of things, but those might be my tops. <laughs> um, and do you have a book that you would recommend that every singer read? And it doesn't need to be a music book necessarily. 
Yeah, gosh, I am a huge bibliophile, um, so I probably could list 100 (laughs) for you. Like, I I read every single day. Um, I think reading is so important because it is such an exercise in self-discovery. And even if it's just novels, I think it's so important for us as, as artists on the stage to be able to deeply understand the human condition. So I think you know, overall, I would just say, just read something, (laughs) (laughs) read something that enriches you in some way, shape or form. If I'm looking at my bookshelf, uh, I think the book fight your fear and win by Don Green is a great one for many musicians. A lot of people do like the inner game of music. I, I like it. Um, I think (laughs) I have yet to find like sort of the life changing book. I think the artist's way is a great book to read and a great thing to do for yourself. Yeah, we um, talk about the artist's way quite a bit here. It's Evan's yeah. favorite book. It changed oh, my yeah, life. Yeah. It totally yeah. changed. It is. It's an amazing, amazing book. Um, she's amazing. Um, Mariah, you were mentioning Untamed. I've read mm-hmm. that recently and also totally loved it. Um, anything by Brene Brown, The Gifts of right. Imperfection. Um, mm-hmm. I read a fantastic book recently um, called The Art of Impossible by Stephen Kotler. I think that could be a really good one for performers. Um, yeah. Ask me next week and I'll, I'll come up with a different top 10 list for you because I just, I, I read incessantly. <laughs> oh, thank you amazing. so much for agreeing to meet with us today. You have brought just a wealth of knowledge, experience, everything to this table. And we're so lucky yeah. to have you in our industry. Seriously. Thank oh, you so thank much. Thank you guys. It's absolutely my pleasure. I love meeting new people and making new connections and, if any of your listeners are curious about what I do, they can either visit my website. I also do free 60-minute consultations with prospective wow. clients to figure out if we'd be the right fit for one another. Um, and if we're not, that's also not a problem. I think sometimes people are hesitant to reach out like, well, I don't know if I could afford this or work with her. Just you know, right. hit me up on my website and let's have a conversation. And if I'm not the right fit for you, that's totally fine too. I offer a lot of free workshops and webinars if you join my mailing list. And um, I'm also happy to point people in the direction of services that might be more appropriate for them. So CourageousArtistry.com. Yes. And on social media as well, which is where we found you. Yes, correct. At at Courageous Artistry on both um, Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, I found you through your free workshops and have really enjoyed them. So. Oh, cool. Thanks. Oh, I didn't know that you were at any of those. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, to our dear listeners, thank you for listening today and supporting us. We feel empowered by working with such creative, powerful, and beautiful souls. Yes, and we need you to keep working and growing in your music because the world needs your voices. So stop waiting in the wings. Go out and take the stage. In Boca Lupo. Thank you for listening to another episode of Take the Stage Opera Podcast. We love hearing from you, so please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and give us a review. It helps us to continue delivering quality material. 